last few weeks, we've been talking essentially about sticking points. And, you know, what's a sticking point? It's some obstruction. It's some, uh, you know, bottleneck that creates an impasse, uh, either in the project, in the conversation, or whatever's going on. And so there are so many of those in life, of course, but also in Scripture, in theology, as it has been passed down to us, interpretations, uh, and, and various practices. And so when we run up against those, it's, it's difficult for us to process, to move past them. And so we've been trying to work on those and taking them one by one so that there is nothing kind of left between us. No speed bumps, no roadblocks, no sticking points between us and a clear shot at being able to connect the way Jesus is trying to get us to connect, what he calls kingdom, that quality of life that we can have. So in terms of using Jesus' principles and teaching to try to figure out how, a few weeks ago, do we find identity in submission? There's that S word, right? Now, to us, submission is a loss of identity. To us, submission is a loss of personhood, really. Our culture, which so idolizes individuality and and dominant power and strength, to be in a submissive position or submitted position is probably a better way to put it, a surrendered position, um, is something that we do not revere. We don't value and we kind of abhor. And so Jesus... In every one of these sticking points, he's trying to take our normal view of things and basically turn them around 180 degrees, raise our perspective so that we can see a larger picture and we can see how this really works. Because truly, in Jesus' economy, in his theology, if you want to call it that, in his way is the best way to put it, we only and ever find our identity from a submitted position. There is no other position that will teach us who we are like that. And so it's a raising of perspective to be able to figure that out. How do we find identity in submission? Not going by the way our culture and the way we typically look at life, but if we can raise and turn and see things through God's eyes, through Father's eyes, through Jesus' eyes, something changes. So we try to find identity in submission. We try to find spirituality in physicality. How do we find our spirituality in physical life? They seem to be diametrically opposed. But yet, while we're breathing here, the only way we'll ever be able to express our spirituality is through our physicality. And so there's another sticking point. Trying to find the future of the church in ancient forms was another one that we looked at. Seems to be an oxymoron, seems to be a paradox, But going back to the future is exactly what we need to do if we are going to process our spirituality, process life the way the ancient peoples did who wrote the scriptures that are instructing us now. How are we going to learn from them? How are we going to be able to move with them if we don't move back into ancient forms? And to find hope in a cruel world. That was last week. How do we do that? Every single one of these is possible. Every single one of these sticking points, these paradoxes, must be negotiated. When Jesus was talking about the narrow way and the constricted gate that leads to life, these are the kinds of things he's talking about. 
Are we willing to lay down everything we think we know and absorb, accept a different viewpoint, reality, enough to be able to move forward through those sticking points? This is everything that Jesus is trying to show us how to do. How many of you heard the, uh, the, <laughs> the story of two cars in a cornfield? Probably not very many of you. I'm trying to illustrate a point here. Okay, so here's the scenario. How many of you have ever experienced corn in the Midwest? All right, a few of you. You know, when, when the corn gets to, uh, to about harvest type, it's 10 or 12 feet high. So imagine this immense cornfield with two roads intersecting in the middle of the cornfield, and you've got two cars on a collision course moving toward the intersection. They can't see anything. They're in a canyon of corn, right? That's all they can see. But they're moving, and they're going to be crashing at that intersection. Now imagine that there is an observation post right at the intersection who can see, because of this raised perspective, down all four legs of the highway and sees what's going to happen. And if that person in the tower was in radio communication with at least one of the cars, he could radio down and say, hey, slow down. You're about to have a car accident, a T-bone in the intersection. And the person slows down just in time, and zoom, here comes the other car across. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, he just foretold the future. It's amazing. Well, it wasn't the foretelling of the future. It was a raised perspective that made the difference, to be able to see over the details of the moment. This is what Jesus is trying to do for us. He's trying to raise our perspective. He's trying to show us a radically different view of life, this narrow way of his, what I've called the fifth way as opposed to the four ways that move across the face of the earth in two dimensions, Jesus brings a fifth way. And if you're interested in more of that, the book is on sale in the cafe. (laughs) Shameless plug, right? But that's the idea. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get us to see from a higher perspective so we can see how these seeming sticking points, these paradoxes, really just fall apart. Just like we can now see the intersection. Same sort of idea. Now, on Wednesday night, when we're going through The Prophet by uh, Khalil Gibran, um, we read about joy and sorrow. And it became another huge sticking point for, for those of us in the study group. And I'm thinking it's a really great place for us to jump off again and start talking about, okay, where do we find joy in sorrow? Because that doesn't sound very promising. But take a look at what the, what the poet says. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the prophet, it is Khalil Gibran's masterwork from 1923. And uh, it is a story of a, of a young prophet, a man, who is shipwrecked in a foreign city for 12 years, I think it is. And when his ship finally comes to take him home, as he's leaving, the people are begging him to stay because he's become an institution, a comfort, and a source of wisdom for them. Um, But he says, no, I have to go. But before he does, they are allowed to ask him a series of questions, and then he answers them. And this particular one is on joy and sorrow. And he says, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. Think about that for a second. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. How else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more, more joy you can contain. 
Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look deep into your heart, and you shall find that it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. And when you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say, joy is greater than sorrow. And others say, nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep in your bed. Verily, you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you at a standstill and balanced. When the treasure keeper lifts you to weigh his gold and silver, needs must your joy or your sorrow rise or fall. All right. Let that absorb for just a second. He's making two main points, and he makes them in the first stanza. And the first point is that your joy is your sorrow unmasked. Now, he's not necessarily saying that joy and sorrow are the same thing, because we know that they're not. But what he is saying is, is that both come from the same source, the same well. The same thing engenders both joy and sorrow. And the second point that he's making is that the more sorrow that you experience, or the beautiful way he puts it, the more deeply sorrow carves into your being. You know, like hollowing out a gourd so you can drink from it. The more it deeply carves into your being, the more, the more joy that you can contain. So there is some connection between experiencing the sorrow and being able to experience greater and greater amounts of joy. Now, here's my question. Does that seem right to you? (laughs) I'll tell you what, the study group had a big problem with it. So it's okay if, if you want to disagree. It's just the poet. You can do that. It's all right. Does that seem right to you? Are joy and sorrow really two sides of the same thing? You know? The study group especially had trouble with the second stanza, and it was especially the last two lines of that stanza. And this is the the first one. This is one they really didn't like. When you are joyous, look deep into your heart, and you shall find that it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. That was really a difficult concept for for the study group to, to come to grips with. They didn't have as much trouble with the next one. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Now, this might be a bit of hyperbole, you know, just exaggeration, not meant to be taken literally by the poet to get a point across. But I want you to think for a second. What has been the greatest source of joy in your life? Think about that for a second. What has been the greatest source of joy in your life? Anyone want to throw one out? Children? Children? Say again? Birth of his daughter. Okay. We're all going in the same direction here. Granddaughter. I was just going to say, anyone for grandchildren yet? How about that? No one said husband or wife. Come on. (laughs) It's going to normally be people, isn't it? It's going to be your spouse. It's going to be your children, your grandchildren, maybe a friend that has been an absolute godsend to you in your life. Or maybe maybe it's a talent that you have. You know, I, I get a lot of joy out of playing music. 
You know, it's not necessarily my greatest joy, but I get a lot of joy out of it. Maybe it's a skill set that you have that allows you to do certain things. All right? What's that? Pets, absolutely. Pets are a great source of, of joy, right? So all of this is something that we see and find joy in. But think about that. Isn't it the same person who can give you the most joy that can also give you the most pain? I mean, think about that. Your children. Oh my gosh, as soon as they become teenagers. Oh my gosh, it kind of shifts, doesn't it? You know? We work in, in substance abuse, and we've, we've been doing this for, for 15, 20 years. We've watched parents just agonizing over their children's choices. The same one that they watched being born, the same one that gave them such joy in their arms and through their, their childhood, is now giving them pain that is absolutely, unimaginably excruciating. Spouses the same way, friends the same way. This is what the, the point, I think, that is, is really, uh, we really need to, to get, is that if it isn't the same person, place, or thing that gave you joy that's now giving you sorrow, it has the potential to give you sorrow. Why is that? Because what has happened when we experience joy, what is joy really? Joy is the sensation of an open heart. When we open our hearts, when we become completely vulnerable, open, and connected, when we drop every last defense, every last thought that would shelve us away from where we are right here and right now, that is experienced by us as joy. But as soon as we do that, we are defenseless, right? We have given our heart away. We have fallen in love, even if it's just a pet. But what happens when that pet gets sick? When that happens when that pet has to be put down? The same source gives us both because we have opened our heart. We have fallen in love. And here is the most succinct way that I can put it. Joy and sorrow are not contained in the person, place, or thing that is giving us the joy or sorrow. It is a condition of our heart. Joy is in the sensation of having completely opened and undefended our heart. Sorrow is the sensation of completely opening and undefending our heart. We experience joy when the beloved is present. We experience sorrow when the beloved is not. Or we have lost the beloved. It's the same source. It is the condition of our heart that makes both joy and sorrow possible in and through whatever it is we have opened our hearts to. We can't choose joy or sorrow. We can only open our hearts or not. This is what the poet is trying to get across. You ever wonder what the greatest invention ever invented was? I promise this will connect. Eventually. There's, there's actually a joke about this. There's a, a bunch of guys sitting around and they're talking about, what's the greatest invention of all time? And of course, the automobile comes up and lasers come up and the internet comes up and so on and so forth. So they're coming through all these things and they're explaining why they think that's the greatest invention. And then finally a guy says, I know what the greatest invention is. What's that? The thermos. The thermos? Really? You're going to have to explain that one to me. Why is the thermos the greatest invention ever? He says, well, when you put hot things in it, it stays hot, right? Yeah. And when you put cold things in it, it stays cold, right? Yeah, it's a thermos. He says, yeah. But how does it know? 
Come on. Come on. What is the genius of the thermos? (laughs) The genius of the thermos is retention. It's simple retention. It contains and it holds whatever is present in it. It doesn't know. It doesn't choose whether it's hot or cold. It just holds whatever is poured in to its heart. This is the same thing with us. Our hearts are the thermos. Whatever pours in, we can't choose. If our heart is open and accepts what is coming in, it's going to be one thing or the other. All we can choose is to open our heart or not, to be connected or not, to be vulnerable or not. Now, a little bit more seriously, there was a woman named Evelyn Beatrice Hall, and you probably have never heard that name before, and she didn't even get to write under her own name. She was nineteenth, er, nine, late 19th, early 20th century writer in England and had to write under a male pseudonym. See how unfair things have been. But she wrote two books on Voltaire, the, the famous French philosopher, who was renowned for his adamant defense of freedom of speech. And the second book that she wrote in 1906 She coined a phrase, uh, wrote a phrase that has reverberated through history since, and it is is this. In trying to describe the way that Voltaire felt about freedom of speech, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Have you heard that one before? Beautiful, huh? What is the thought here behind that? If you deny anyone the right to say what you think is wrong, then soon... Eventually, inevitably, you will lose the right to say what you think is right. The defense of the rights of others is really self-defense. Absolutely. Let's put it another way. If I want to say what I want to say, (laughs) then I must be willing to hear what I don't want to hear. Because that's the only way this works. Freedom must be absolutely free equally across the board or it doesn't exist at all. If I want to say what I want to say, i got to be willing to hear what I don't want to hear. If I want to feel what I want to feel, that is joy, then I must be willing to feel what I don't want to feel, which is sorrow. I can't have it both ways. I can't shelve one off and only accept the other. If I am going to open my heart, I am open to everything. I'm the thermos. There's nothing I can do about that. It's all about freedom. Freedom must be equally free or it doesn't exist at all. Why is freedom the highest good, the goal of Jesus' way to the Father? It is, you know. He told us that. He said, if you follow this way of mine, you follow my commandments, you follow my way of living life, then you're going to know the truth and the truth will make you free. Free from all your fears, enough that you'll be free to be open and vulnerable and connected, free to accept whatever comes in on its own terms. This is why freedom is the highest and the good and goal of Jesus' way. Love is only love if it's freely chosen. Freedom to be open. And if we're unwilling to feel what we feel is wrong, then we will lose our ability to feel what is right to us, the joy. If we're unwilling to feel the sorrow, we will lose our ability to feel the joy, just like with freedom of speech. 
This is the true sense of what Jesus is driving at. Take a look when he says at, right at, at Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For the way in which you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And that sounds really punitive to us. First of all, it sounds like judgment is about condemning people, disparaging them, cutting them down. And if we do it, then someone's going to cut us down. But in the larger sense of what Jesus is talking about, yeah, we shouldn't be doing that either. But think about how we judge each emotion. Think about how we judge each moment. Think about what it is that we're really doing here. When we're judging feelings, when we're judging circumstances as good or bad, then we are creating that moment for ourselves rather than being able to accept. The church itself and our culture have both kind of conspired to set the standards for all of this. And if you think about it, we look at sorrow as being evil to such a degree that we are not only constantly trying to avoid it, but we're trying to pray it away. We're trying, we, we think that it is a sign of God's disapproval of us. And so we're always avoiding it and shelving it off. And when it comes to us, we think that there's something wrong. And we're asking everybody to circle up and pray so that we don't feel this sorrow anymore. But what Jesus is trying to say here is that it is an absolutely essential part of all of this. You can't have your joy without the sorrow. And without the sorrow, there isn't going to be the growth along the way. Look how he says it at Matthew 5.4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now that is a weird saying, isn't it? I mean, we know what blessed means. In, in the expanded sense of the Aramaic, tobay, blessed means a whole stack of things all at the same time. It can mean happy, it can mean healthy, it can mean you're fortunate if, congratulations to you. It can mean all of these things. But it is a positive. To be tobe, to be blessed, means that you are full of health and wealth and prosperity and, and, and communication and connection, all those things. When you mourn, how is that possible? The word for mourn there is ibal in Aramaic. And it means to mourn, but it also means to be confused. It means to be in turmoil. It means to be all roiled up. It means to be wandering, lost, confused. And then the, the, the word for comforting, bayan net bayun, means to be returned from the wandering, to be reconnected to the things that were in turmoil and in confusion. And so we see a little bit different take on what this is from an Aramaic point of view. Congratulations to you when you have taken a journey. You have wandered off into a place of confusion, a place of disorientation, because it's by doing that that you will find your way home again and literally see the face of that which you longed for. That which you longed for and made you weak from the longing is now in front of you again. It is a necessary journey. It's the same journey, the Paschal mystery, the descent before the ascent. It's just another description of the same thing. But think about this. If you went through your life never having mourned anything, successfully avoiding the sorrow, successfully avoiding the pain, what does that really mean? 
It means that your heart was never open enough to create enough of a connection with anything from a cocker spaniel to a grandchild that when you lost it, it even moved your needle. What kind of life is that? To live in connection, to live with our hearts open, to live with a space, a trail of breadcrumbs to us for anyone that we meet is what living in kingdom is all about. But as soon as we do that, just like that thermos, we're going to get the hot and the cold. We have no control over that. All we can do is be open, be willing. C.S. Lewis says it perfectly. Take a listen to this. He doesn't mince any words. He says, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Wow. Why don't you say what you really think there, buddy? (laughs) Oh, gosh. We guard against sorrow at the cost of our own humanity. We guard against sorrow at the cost of finding our own purpose as human beings. We guard against sorrow at the cost of losing kingdom experience forever in our lives. This is what the poet and Jesus are trying to tell us. When we open up, it has to come in. And then we move to Gibran's second point, right? The deeper sorrow carves into your being, the more joy that you can contain. With increased sorrow, what comes? Those of you who have really suffered something, those of you who have gone through cancer scares and gotten to the other side, those of you who have lost a child or a grandchild or a spouse or a friend, anyone, think about what that has done in terms of the change in your life. If you have actually moved through the stages of grief, if you have healed from that, you have gained a new understanding, an increased awareness, an empathy, an ability to identify with the pain of others, a a gravitas, you know, a depth in life that you won't have any other way. And it allows you to be open to others in a deeper way that you weren't before. Because I went through the pain of divorce, I am able to talk to people going through that in a way that I couldn't before. One of my founding partners, Jeff Jones, was a heroin addict. He could talk to heroin addicts in a way that I couldn't talk to them. He could establish a connection, a bond, get eye contact in 35 seconds that I couldn't get. There was a knowing between them. Something happens as we go through this. 
And we all know the people who haven't really suffered in life. They kind of still sit at the surface of things. The things that they say sound like platitudes to us because they don't hit the heart of knowing what someone who has suffered knows about life. This is the carving out of our insides, the laying bare that allows us to hold more of the joy when we do reconnect. This is it. This raised perspective of Jesus shows us that the presence of sorrow in our lives is not a curse. It's not God's disapproval. This is going to sound weird, but it's actually the proof of the existence of love. The presence of sorrow is the proof of love in our lives. It is the proof that we gave ourselves to someone or something so fully, so deeply, that we hurt just as deeply at the loss. The willingness to submit to the possibility of that kind of pain, the certainty of that kind of sorrow, is a proof that we have found our own identity in God. We now know, have experienced how God loves and experiences us with the same kind of profundity. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to experience. And once we find ourselves identified with a deeper love, with God's love, then we can find the comfort, the return from the wandering. Look how Augustine puts it. This is so beautiful and profound, and it's so short. If you blink, you miss it. He says, For he alone, she alone, loses none dearer to him or her, to whom all are dear, in him who cannot be lost. Do you get what he's saying here? For he alone loses no one dear to him, to whom all are dear, in him who cannot be lost. Once we start to realize that we are loving as God loves, there is a continuity that starts to dawn upon us. Even as people, places, and things move in and out of our lives that we're open to, that create the joy and then the sorrow, there's a deeper continuity that runs through this. And we realize we can't lose that. It is all connected. It is all one thing. Nothing is ever really lost in God. It just changes forms. And it's still going to hurt when we lose someone dear to us, something dear to us. But we won't be devastated to the point that we cannot heal. We won't be devastated to the point that we still can't be present to others who need us at a certain moment in time. This makes all the difference in the world. In God, in Christ, is the continuity that will take us past the sticking point that lies simply in raising our perspective and seeing this from a different point of view. To see life as it really is, not as we just imagine, and sorrow as the beautiful proof of our willing openness. I want to give Scott Peck the last word here because what he says in the opening paragraphs of his landmark book, The Road Less Traveled, some of you I'm sure have read it, I think this kind of brings it home. You ready? Life is difficult. First sentence. (laughs) Three words. Life is difficult. This is a great truth. One of the greatest truths. 
It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Raise perspective, right? Once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Most do not fully see this truth that life is difficult. Instead, they moan, more or less incessantly, noisily or subtly, about the enormity of their problems, their burdens, and their difficulties, as if life were generally easy, as if life should be easy. They voice their belief, noisily or subtly, that their difficulties represent a unique kind of affliction that should not be, and that has somehow been especially visited upon them or else upon their families, their tribe, their class, their nation, their race, or even their species, and not upon others. I know about this moaning because I have done my share. Life is a series of problems. Do we want to moan about them or solve them? Do we want to teach our children to solve them? What makes life difficult is that the process of confronting and solving problems is a painful one. Problems, depending upon their nature, evoke in us frustration or grief or sadness or loneliness or guilt or regret or anger or fear or anxiety or anguish, despair. These are uncomfortable feelings, often very uncomfortable, often as painful as any kind of physical pain, sometimes equaling the very worst kind of physical pain. Indeed, It is because of the pain that events or conflicts engender in us all that we can call problems. And since life poses an endless series of problems, life is always difficult and is always full of pain as well as joy. Yet it is in this whole process of meeting and solving problems that life has its meaning. Problems are the cutting edge that distinguish between success and failure. Problems call forth our courage and our wisdom. Indeed, they create our courage and our wisdom. It is only because of problems that we grow mentally and spiritually. And when we desire to encourage the growth of the human spirit, we challenge and encourage the human capacity to solve problems. Just as in school, we deliberately set problems for our children to solve. It is through the pain of confronting and resolving problems that we learn. As Benjamin Franklin said, those things that hurt, instruct. It is for this reason that wise people learn not to dread, but actually to welcome problems and actually to welcome the pain of problems. But most of us are not so wise. But Jesus would love for us all to be so wise. And that's what he's trying to show us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would be willing to be open, to stay open, to keep open. Whatever parades through our moment, help us to be open to it. Help us to lean in to our moments, even if they are hurting us. Not to shy away, to find you in the center of the moment that gives us the continuity, the connection, that gives us the perseverance to move to the other side, to take our journey and come back again, deeper, 
stronger. Maybe with our hair whitened by the sight of your presence. Father, thank you for creating life in just the way that you did. That gives us everything that we need to fulfill our mission here. To become a people willing to be open and vulnerable. Willing to be hurt just as you were on the cross. For the sake of love. Help us to love that much. And stop seeing the sorrow as something negative something that is a mark of your disapproval and realize we're exactly where we need to be if we are a people of faith living with an open heart. Thank you for everything that you do to bolster us, to encourage us, and to fortify us, to provide us with everything that we need, Lord. Never let us forget we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's all stand.